I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Jeremy Corbyn as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with a politician who entered the Houses of Parliament in 1983. He spent most of his life there classed as a maverick outsider until, against all odds, he became leader of the opposition in 2015. He's been charged with making politics popular again, so much so, he even got a spot at Glastonbury. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with Jeremy Corbyn. Of all the guests that I've ever had on this show, you're the one whose career has transformed when it shouldn't have done. I mean, the last I beg two... Your pardon. Well, the, but the last two years for you must have been bonkers, really, when you consider the previous three decades you've spent most of your time almost as an outsider and on the edge of everything. Now you're proper centre stage. Well, maybe the stage has moved. Well, maybe it has. I mean, for you, though, you couldn't have anticipated that. No, no, you can't. I put my name forward for the election campaign for leader in 2015. And as you know, it was an easy gig. We just had to get on the ballot paper. That was the... But at that time, even when you were nominated, you were still 200 to 1. And I know you were 200 to 1, because I remember speaking to a mate of mine saying, that's worth a bet. And he talked me into not doing it, and I've kicked myself ever since. And there was a guy down the road from me who did put some money on. And uh, <clears throat> all through that summer for the campaign, every day I go out to go off on the campaign, somebody says, are you going to win? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, look, I've put a lot of money on this. You've got to win. I said, no pressure, like, you know, I said... I was like, hang on, I've got to win this for him now. <laughs> so if you win, he gets a holiday and pays off his debt, and if you don't, that's it, you've got that on your I haven't seen him conscience. since, so he must yeah. have moved. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this <clears throat> career that you've chosen, the path that you've gone, we'll come on to a lot more later, but what's struck me about it is is the way you've galvanised the youth primarily. And this was illustrated, I think, massively this year at the Glastonbury Festival, where you were asked to come and talk at the Glastonbury Festival. Some people criticised you for doing it, but I was actually there. And it was amazing, because when you go to Glastonbury, everyone says, what are you going to see? And you're telling the bands you're going to see. You were on everybody's list to actually go and see. The number of people I said, I've got to go and see Jezza. I've got... I thought Jezza was a new rapper. <laughs> <laughs> You're a British politician stood on a stage at a music festival and people have got the, your initials painted on the face. Now, there mustn't have been a stage in your career where you thought, I can't wait for that to happen. That, <laughs> I've never seen that before well, with I anyone. Never, I never really thought about, about, it, how, uh, about that. I didn't go through life planning to do this, do that, be this, be that. Absolutely. I, my whole life has been what it is. I, I take up causes, I take up the cause of injustices, and I campaign for them. And sometimes 
you get abused, sometimes you get denigrated, sometimes you get abused and denigrated. Yeah. But it's OK. But this little moment in time that we've got, uh, mm. where you look at, at particularly, the, you know, the 2017 election, where you everybody says that, you know, the more young people got involved in politics. And I can see it with my own kids. In fact, I think there was a statistic saying that on the final day of registration, over 450,000 under 35-year-olds registered to vote. Yeah. The assumption being most of them were voting for you. What do you think it is that you've got? It's not about me, it's about their position in life. They are being told, as I said at Glastonbury, you're going to pay for education, you're going to pay for health. There isn't all the things available that you had when you were that age, that I certainly had when I was that age. I wasn't told, go to university and come out with £50,000 worth of debt. I was told, if you get into university, we'll pay your fees, we will support you while you're at university, and there's a very good chance of a job when you come out. What kids are now told, go to university, come out with £50,000 worth of debt, and then pay for it for the rest of your life. And what does that say to people? What does it say to them? That we don't value what you're studying, we don't value what you're doing, and we all lose out because there's going to be fewer graduates eventually. But I think what what a lot of people might say is it's easy being you because at the moment you don't have to deliver on the promises you're saying. So a lot of people would potentially look at that and say, yeah, well, that, that's that's the fresh-faced youth. They're the people full of optimism. And there's a danger if you can have this public persona where people say you're the answer to everything, that if you ever do get into power, you're not going to be able to live up to it. We went through all this in the manifesto. We actually thought about this very carefully before mm. the election. And the student fees issue is a big call. It's a very yeah. big call. We spent a long time going through the figures on it, going through the cost on it, going through the benefits on it. And uh, the offer we were making is on education, is on housing, is on health, and is on raising tax for the biggest businesses and corporations. We want something that is challenging, yeah. Is going to um, affect the wealth of a small number of people, yeah. But it will be fairly shared out. And Surely where, that's what it's about. Yeah, but where does that come from in you? Because Me. looking at your life, you should really be a Tory. Not, in, you know, if someone was to say, well, you, know, you had a nice middle-class life, you, you went to a fee-paying prep school, you did the 11 plus, went to a grammar school. Where was it that gave you this, this, this socialism, this drive inside? My mum and dad were both um, very principled people on peace and justice issues. They met in campaigning in support of the Spanish Republic in the 1930s. My mum was at Cable Street opposing the fascists. They were people of, of great principle. So, yeah, I got a lot of from that. But what, what I'm trying to understand is the drive that got you into politics, because you were interested in politics straight away, and you know your mum and dad were motivated, mm. but you were one of four boys, so it must have been a lively house. To have chosen politics as above everything else is quite an interesting choice. Well, they all went off to be engineers or scientists, and I fell by the wayside. <laughs> <laughs> and your brothers have two names, don't they? Why, why is that? Well, actually, there's another problem as well. Apparently, I was supposed to be called something else. My mum and dad agreed what I was going to be called and he took the papers to go off and register the birth and then he changed the name. Without telling your mum? Yes. So he then got home in the what evening. What was the other name? It wasn't Alison, was no, it? No. <laughs> to, to her dying day, she would never tell me what it was. Oh, really? She said, I said, what was it going to be? She said, can't tell you. <laughs> so we can only speculate. So, so, but And then you... they were all called um, by their second name and I was called by my first name. I've no idea why. And so there's David... It, yeah. 
and John Andrew, who sadly died in um, 2001 in Papua New Guinea, he, he died there as a brain hemorrhage, which is oh. very sad. I was eventually phoned uh, about it, and I just remember the sort of devastation of it. And so I then went to Papua New Guinea to basically to pick up his body and take it to his wife and children in Australia, where they were living. And it was the most... I'd been to Papua New Guinea once before with him, but it was one of the most horrifying and ter horrific things to do, you know? That's tough, isn't it? How, how old was he? He was in his 50s. And then... So we, were, we got on very well, actually. We were very close. He was close, the closest yeah. one. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, we are all close. Yeah, yeah. Your, your fourth brother, uh, Pierce, yeah. is an environmentalist. Yeah, he does weather forecasting based on... Um, solar movements yeah. and studies uh, solar movements in that way and the effect they have on the Earth's atmosphere and therefore can do long-range weather forecasting from that. But it's been suggested he doesn't believe in man-made global warming or CO2. It's not been suggested, it's been asserted by him. Yeah, all right, OK. <laughs> in fact, it's... it's asserted by him every time I meet him. <laughs> <laughs> So what were your mum and dad like as parents? Because they must have encouraged you. What they, my parents encouraged was people to think for themselves, research for themselves, and above all, be practical at what you do. Make things, repair things, do things. But all my brothers got good um, university qualifications. I didn't. Um, what, what happened with you in university? I never went there. <laughs> you never went at all? And what happened was, when I left school, I had uh, two... A-levels, not very high grades, A-levels. And I went to do um, voluntary service overseas in Jamaica. Yeah. I was away for two years altogether. And then um, it was a really formative experience in my life. So when you said it was a very formative experience, yeah. what was the Jeremy who went and the one who came back? What, what kind of happened in between? Um, you come back hopefully more mature in things and learning about other people and their attitudes and seeing an awful lot of the hardship people face in their lives and also the ambitions that they have. Mm. I made one phone call home in two years, but you know what? They were out when I called. <laughs> 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 you, know, you, had to, you had to book a phone call, you had to go to the post office and arrange this call to be made and ring up the... You see, that, that, that just Nobody shows, shows how, how, how the world changed. That's that's right. what... And now you'd be on texting every five minutes, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's what I mean. You know, if, your children go, you know, if your children go out for the evening now, you expect a text during the evening, don't you? Yeah. And when you came back, when did you say, that's it now, I want to go into politics? I never decided to go into politics in that way. I first got involved in Labour politics in uh, mid-1960s. I remember the 64 election very well. So you were involved from a young age? From a very young age, yeah. yeah. Early teens. Yeah. And always committed to the Labour Party? Always in the Labour Party, frequently um, having differences of opinion with people in the Labour Party, particularly at that time uh, about the Vietnam War and economic policy, and um, I've been in the Labour Party all my life. But the, when you said you, you were having disagreements, then you've had disagreements with the leadership of the Labour Party mm -hmm. right the way through. I think, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's still a remaining statistic. About I have no disagreements with the leadership of the Labour no. Party at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the only time you do agree with it. <laughs> you know, you've voted against your own party more than 500 times and so mm -hmm. on. And, and so that's, that's a reputation that you've got. And some people would say, well, that's somebody acting on conscience. Other people would say, well, that's somebody not towing the party line. 
fine. To me, what it strikes But he also, if you think something's wrong, then you should say so. I yeah, mean, yeah. I voted on Iraq war the way I did because I believed it to be fundamentally wrong. Really. Yeah. And that's the way I voted. Yeah. And for you, though, you came into Parliament in 1983. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you said before that you've always been there, was there ever a point where you just thought, this party just, it's not, it's just not for me anymore? No. Because the Labour Party was founded by people with incredible vision of the idea you could be a representative of a trade union, representative of an organisation like a social society, social education or something like that, or representative of your community through a constituency. And it's that amalgamation of people that's very, very powerful and those principles behind it. And so I was never in favour of people leaving the Labour Party, however much they disagreed with it. Stay there and continue making your voice heard and continue representing your community. And that's what I've done. For the, the general population, it's a job that I find hard to get my head around because it's, apart from, I suppose, being a footballer, where, you know, when you play away, everybody shouts abuse at you. It's a job where, no. when you're playing at home, people are shouting abuse at you. There's an MP. So, so every, every match is an away match, <laughs> yeah. you know, for MP. As an MP, that's okay. the bit that I, I don't understand. And particularly, I'll come down to you again personally in a minute, but just as a profession, what kind of person does it attract? Then My mum said to me once, some people that become MPs are really very strange, you know. But they've, they've said the show business for ugly people. It's a, it's a comment about that because there's a lot of bravado. But I, I think I, I don't buy into the idea that everybody in one party is, you know, and I, I've, I've traditionally been a Labour supporter myself, that everybody in the Labour Party is really good and really nice and doing everything for, for the social well-being of everyone else. And everybody in the Tory party is supporting big business and doesn't care about anyone who's not rich. And I, I don't buy that because I don't think that's the case. Am I naive? I think Parliament is seen as a very attractive place for many people to go. I would hope people go to Parliament because they genuinely want to represent an area, generally want to represent people, generally want to represent causes. Here's a question that I think a lot of people would, would want to ask. Do you look across, across the house and see talented people or do you just see people and say, no matter what they say, I've got to object to it because they're on the other team? No, you see people that um, you maybe fundamentally disagree with their principles and the way that they would the way they would develop society they would have a completely different approach but you also see people that on occasions on particular issues you've agreed with that was on select committee on justice there were some conservatives who eventually came round to agreeing with uh, what i was saying and others on my side were saying about legal aid being the basis of justice and that everyone gets access to courts and uh, there are some you agree with on particular issues so you look at people and you say well actually yeah, he will support us on this. And so when you put forward a private member's bill, you try and get support from elsewhere for it. Well, here's a question then about the running of the country, because the two things that every MP, no matter what shade, says is important is the NHS and education. Why not take them out of politics? Why not remove the idea that there's a Secretary of State running an organisation of which a lot of them are not qualified to do? And I say that because I've had a little look at how many Secretaries of State that we've had and what their background was, if anyone ever worked in the health service before, and the same for education. Don't you think as a society we should just appoint the best person to run it and then as a government you say, well, there's a portion of tax that automatically every year it goes to those things. And when it goes wrong, 
who do you blame if you don't have a political line of accountability? Well, you can have a political line of accountability, you have but to at have the, at a the Secretary moment, of State. Yeah, and you can hold <clears> them to account, but you don't have to replace the person at the top with a politician who, a few years before, was putting pamphlets through a letterbox to get elected with the rosette on. You appoint from what's available. So to be the Secretary of State, you have to be an elected politician. Now, to be an elected politician doesn't mean you're the best person to run the NHS. And so you can only pick from the number of people who, not only who are elected politicians, yeah, I, but are also think, on your side. Don't you think you're heading into a slightly dodgy road here? Don't know. Are you confident of your position? In what way? A democracy means that anybody, anybody in this room has a right for a voice, a right to stand for election, and therefore a right to be elected and a right to have their influence. Are you saying that because somebody works on the bins as a refuse worker, they're not capable of making a decision about education, about health or about housing? But That's what a democracy is about. If they're a Secretary no. of State, they are. No. Making some of them, anyway. So, hang on. They're hang making on, fundamental no. spending decisions. No, let, let, let's clarify this. No, I'm not going to go at you, I promise you. No, 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 I'm I enjoying this. I didn't I'm come in there go. Well, are you running for election? No, what I'm saying... <laughs> no, what I'm saying is... He'd be good, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is, what happens is a mass filter that goes up between all those people who vote, they vote for somebody, they get elected, they're in parliaments, and then there's the, the group of people, whether they're in the shadow cabinet or become the main cabinet, from which is selected the individual who's the Secretary of State for Health. Now, what I'm saying is if you have a Chief Executive of Health in the same way that we have we have Carney, who's, who, who, who runs the Bank of England, you well, have somebody who's... Health, in, yeah. so, so you've got somebody who's independent but answerable to an extent, you know, you can do that without it being a politician. It drives me bonkers. And again, it would seem biased if I, if I point at individuals, but when the Labour Party were in power, we had three secretaries of state for the health service in four and a half years just over. That's ridiculous. That's not, that's not running an organisation properly. You take the education system, Michael Gove come in and just went bonkers with it. And that shouldn't be allowed. I think changing ministers too quickly is not a good idea <laughs> yeah. because it takes... Yes, in the NHS, you've got an NHS board, you've got an NHS chief and so on, you've got all of that. But you also need to have a Secretary of State that understands the totality of it, is not interfering in day-to-day -day administrative decisions, but is trying to set a general policy. Do we spend more on public health, which is preventative, or do you spend more on uh, acute care or more money on mental health. Those are quite big decisions to make, uh, but it's not up to the Secretary of State or the Ministers to be doing all the um, all the detailed work. We've got to set the policies, and uh, I don't see anything wrong with that, but there has to be accountability of how the money was spent. This podcast is sponsored by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really, and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is something that I really want to ask you about, particularly at the position that you're in now, is this, this issue of, of fake news, for want of a better phrase. You know, where there used to be a time where everyone had the same facts and you could have different opinions. Now everyone's almost got different facts about the same thing. That can't be a healthy environment. How do you deal with that? That's very, very good, very profound point, because some decades ago, there was one television channel and there were 10 daily newspapers and there were two or three radio stations. Now we are with uh, a whole... I don't even know the number of television channels there are. I know the main ones, obviously, but, you know, don't know them all. And there are newspapers which have falling circulation and there is huge interaction on social media, and it is possible to put anything on social media. Factually correct or not, true or false, you can put it there. I mean, obviously, if it's libelous or something, it can be challenged, but it's the stuff is still there. I think social media, at its best, is a liberation. It gives everyone a chance to find things out, search things out, to say something and have it rebutted or, or replied to. And at some level it can be fascinating, and at another level it can be unbelievably horrible and abusive. But newspapers can be horrible and abusive. I mean, mm. the Daily Mail took up 14 pages attacking me on the day before the general yeah. election. Four, them. 14 whole pages? You read them all? No, no, I went through them for research for this because yeah. there was a... a um, but some of it was There was an article bizarre. in The Independence which really struck me. It said, in the first two months of your leadership as the Labour leader, 75% of all the press coverage was inaccurate. Yeah. Now, how on earth do you not go screaming at the moon when people are, are printing things about you that you didn't say? Well, one is I don't get involved in personal abuse. I don't give it, I don't reply to it, I don't get involved. Um, because as far as I'm concerned, I'm not reducing myself to that level. And so if people don't like what I wear, don't like what I look like or whatever, that's their problem, not mine. OK? So I stick to what I believe to be the political points and principles that I believe in. Um, the inaccuracy, obviously, if it's inaccurate about something I've said or a policy point, we do try and challenge it. But during that time, the election period, you were also given the same platform as everyone else. On Did television. Help? On yeah. television, yeah. But not the, in press. Not in press. No, the television coverage made a, a huge difference because there had to be an equality of time between the um, parties, and that's how it should be, and that, that's reasonable. And that did make a very big difference. So the things so that... social media was the key in that... The there were a lot of people put a lot of effort in on putting stuff out on social media in support of what we were doing in the election. It made a very big difference, as it did in the United States. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I was going to come on to, like, how do you deal with the president who, who tweets his policies before he spoke to anyone? If you become prime minister, how on earth are you going to deal with someone like with Donald Trump? What will that first meeting be like? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> 
interesting. I mean, the, the, there's a number of things I'd like to discuss with President Trump, and I will. Climate change, for a start. I'm you not bring sure. your brother out and just go... <laughs> <laughs> it could be interesting, could yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think he's a man you could work with? I'd put my case to him. He no doubt would have a great deal to say to me. And um, I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got to ask you, there's two main subjects that I, I am really interested in that come from the press coverage of you. A lot of people have said that you, in the past, have allowed a voice to, to terrorists because you, you met with representatives of Hamas, Hezbollah and the IRA. As you said, it wasn't the IRA, it was Sinn Féin. Now, that become common parlance that you're, you're a terrorist sympathiser and you would not be good for this country because of that. Now, how do you counteract that or do you counteract it? I say that uh, if you're to bring about a peace process, there has to be a dialogue with people that you do not agree with, that people that do things you absolutely do not agree with. But if you don't bring them to the table, then what's the alternative? The war in uh, anywhere in the world has to end by a political process. The problems in Northern Ireland were never going to be won militarily by either side. And eventually, what had been secret talks became more public, and we ended up with a Good Friday Agreement. Is that not a step forward? Yeah, but whilst those secret talks were, were going on, you were seen to be doing it publicly, like bringing two members of Sinn Féin or, again, at that point, mm -hmm. it was very much blurred between the IRA and Sinn Féin into Parliament two weeks after the Brighton bombing. And said and the people, people were going like, what, what are you doing that for? I said, look, there's got to be a solution to this. You can't go on with this. The bombing was awful, was wrong, absolutely wrong. I had condemned it, do condemn it, completely wrong. But there has to be a process that brings about a resolution. And I, nothing is permanent and forever, but the Good Friday Agreement, with the respect for the historical traditions of uh, unionist and uh, nationalist in Northern Ireland, it's a quite fascinating basis for that agreement. Mm. And, and so that, that period of your time where you were being lambasted, you feel it was a necessary evolution of people understanding that unless you talk, unless there is dialogue, there's no answer. And someone's got if to there's do no it. dialogue, there isn't an answer other than getting deeper and deeper into trenches of alternative forms of um, military action, so which what, is not good. What we face now, then, with ISIS... Do you feel that there's a, a dialogue with, with no, an organisation like them? I've never so... called for that. What I've said was that we should um, cut off all their sources mm. of funding and their sources of weaponry, because very sophisticated weaponry doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah. There's nobody in a desert making uh, making this stuff. It's come from somewhere. People are making a great deal of money out of that, uh, of, of selling these weapons, and there's oil being bought and sold and so on. So I have said a great deal about isolation and also bringing about a, a political dialogue in Syria, which will hopefully prevent the country descending into yet another phase of uh, conflict and war. There's what millions of people are refugees. Tens of thousands have died in Syria. The situation is awful. At the end. There has to be a political process. Therefore, what was done in Geneva, what's been done by the Russians, surely bring those opportunities together. It must be difficult for you because, again, I looked at the footage of you in the anti-war coalition in the marches when you were saying, just as you know, we were going to go in and start the whole process with the you know the weapons of mass destruction, the dodgy dossier, and 
Tony Blair was going to the Parliament and you helped organise what is still ranked as the biggest political protest that this country has seen, whether it, you know, the numbers range from 800,000 to 2 million. Yeah. And you stood on the stage and you said, if we don't find another way, this will only perpetuate more suffering. As you sit there now, do you feel angry that the parliamentary process that we've got and the lack of real information that was around at the time has resulted in the life that we live now? I feel still very angry about what happened and the process that went with it, of course. I spent a great deal of energy and time opposing the Iraq war. And before that, I'd been one of the very, very few MPs that had opposed British arms sales to Iraq um, because I just felt feeding weapons in to that situation. I mean, to Saddam Hussein or anybody else is not going to do any good. Um, the war happened. And what I said at the big rally in um, Hyde Park that day was, if this war goes ahead, it will poison generations to come. The legacy will be more war, more terrorism, more poverty, more injustice, more refugees. Well, how do we... Now we're in that. We have to work. What for, do we do? You work now for a political solution in Syria. You work now for a political solution in Libya as well because of a huge number of refugees in Libya, not just from Syria and uh, the Middle East, but also from uh, different parts of Africa. So you have to be aware of these issues and deal with them and deal with them in, in the most humanitarian way you can. But uh, again... It's not easy. No, I was going to say... I'm not like, pretending it's, it's easy. You say we've got to work on it, we've got to do it. Everyone knows that. But you get involved easy? at the very beginning you get involved on challenging abuses of power and challenging human rights abuses you get involved in the, from from the beginning and you keep on doing that you have a foreign policy that is dedicated towards human rights and justice and we have human rights advisors in our embassies that sort of thing working saying look in iraq Imprisoning journalists, imprisoning judges under Saddam Hussein was wrong. Was he challenged on that sufficiently? Were the sanctions placed to try and bring about yeah. better society? All those kind of things. There isn't an easy, simple answer to all of this, but I tell you, the alternative of all these, all this killing and all this that's gone on since then, it's got to be the worst. OK, well, if, if there's, if there's a, a message to be sent out then about that, you know, we learn from our mistakes, do you believe that when we've made a mistake as big as what we've done on the the evidence that we did it, do you believe that Tony Blair lied to us and should be treated as a war criminal? Because that's a statement that's been attributed to you. And I don't know whether that's I think a fair Tony Blair should be prepared to answer for the stuff that's been put against him. I have the Chilcot report in my office. I have all the volumes of it on, mm. on, on my desk there. And it showed a, I think, a very bad failure of government on the way in which the information was presented to Parliament, and I think it didn't show Parliament in a good light, albeit. 150 Labour MPs opposed the war, as did a number of Conservatives, mm. including Kenneth Clark and a, a number of others. And so whilst it, it wasn't actually a free vote in reality, something so major as that, I suppose you could say. Mm. But I, I saw the pressures going on that day in Parliament and um, I voted the way I did, others voted the way they did. But nobody's been held accountable. And, can, and, and also, and there's a more difficult question, is that a fair thing to do? Because if, if you are in government, if you are the leader, if, as Tony Blair has said, with all the evidence in front of him, he'd make the same decision today, is it right to then hold those people accountable with the benefit of hindsight? It depends if they've been honest with presenting the material or not. I mean, I, I just think we've got to look at ourselves and say, why did we do that? Why did we get involved in that? We were at a point when we could have 
had such a massive influence on the United States, say, look, hang on a minute, on Bush, hang on a minute, pull back, pause. There is a different way of doing this. Mm. And we didn't. Okay. I've got one more quite serious question to ask you. The Labour Party seems to be quite welcoming to all communities. So, you know, if you're black, if you're disabled, if you're woman, everybody seems to have a voice. The one community that doesn't feel represented is the Jewish community. There's a sense that there's anti-Semitism that runs within the Labour Party. Everyone I've spoken to, I've got no of Jewish friends say, it's not you, but it's something endemic in the party. Why would anyone think that? I don't think it is endemic in the party. I think anti-Semitism is appalling and wrong, and I've made that abundantly clear. We have strong Jewish voices in the party. We have Jewish labour movement. We have Jewish voices for labour. We have a very strong Jewish tradition in the party. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, any anti-Semitism is just completely, absolutely wrong. And I have said that whereas people are making anti-Semitic remarks that uh, are clearly the case, then they should be suspended from the party and investigated. But do you feel that the criticism's right? Because some of the things that I've read, it, it seems like if you're anti-Zionist, you've automatically assumed to be anti-Semitic. And that surely can't be right, no, or can it? Uh, no, it, it, it cannot be right that you would shut down a discussion on issues facing any community or, uh, or criticisms of the State of Israel for what it does. But any discussion, any political debate has to be at a respectful level where you respect the other person's faith or belief and you don't attack them for the belief. You don't attack them because they're a Jew, a Muslim, Christian, Hindu or anything else. You might disagree with uh, them, you might disagree with the government they support, but you can still have that debate. And I will not tolerate any racism of any sort in the party or in society. You've spent your life in politics. You're, you've got three sons. You, is, is it your middle son, Seb, mm. is also in politics. When, when he said he wanted to go into it, did you sit him down and go, son, it's just not worth it? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've never known anything other than me being an MP because they were all born after I was first elected. So they've never known anything like that. And the eldest one has been to every uh, count to every election since 1987, just but, after he was born. The first one he came to, he was 10 days old. Uh, that's cruel, isn't it, really? Come on. <laughs> and, no, I love my boys. I'm very close to all three of them. They make their own decisions in life. Now, you, you've given your life to politics and you've given your life to campaigning. You've left the mark on British politics that you couldn't have conceived only three years ago. Has it all been worth it? And would you have swapped any of it? I do what I do because I believe in it. I take the risks I do because I believe in what I'm doing and you put the case out there. I'm proud to work for the community I represent and proud to do stuff to try and change politics and try and help, bit of justice, bit of peace, bit of equality. Okay. That's what I do. All right, well, here's a straightforward thing then. You managed to get in number 10. You think, I've got five years in here. When I walk out, I want to have done one thing. I want to make sure in the five years that this one piece of legislation is in place. Not a broad thing like reduce childhood poverty, because anyone could say that. I mean, one thing that you go, I want to make sure that happens if I ever got that job. Nobody's homeless. Yes, That's good.
There's nothing I don't think anyone would argue with that. But I, I think I think all of us would also like politicians to do that. Just say, you know what, five years, that's all that's the one thing I hope to achieve, and I haven't achieved it, hold me to account. I mean there's obviously a lot of other things I want to do as well. Yeah, of course, but yeah. it's just that one but thing it, that you go. Off. But we've had a discussion which is really interesting, but it's about we've talked about political process and representation. It's also about people and their involvement. I think what's exciting is the number of people who are now talking about political choices and options, talking about what they want to achieve in society. There's that kind of people actually engaged in yeah. a political process. That, if I've helped to promote that and achieve that, then I'm very proud of that because that is something that uh, has needed to happen for a very long time. All the great achievements in this country of Reform Act vote, the early 19th century, Factories Act, free education, social security, women's right to vote, National Health Service, Human Rights Act, Equalities Act, None of those started in Parliament. They all started from people saying, it's wrong that I have to pay for health care. It's wrong that my children can't go to school. It's wrong that people are homeless. People doing stuff together is what gives us all of our rights. Mm. I've got to ask you this as well, just before we come on to the final thing, because I was absolutely fascinated by it, and it also reflects you as a person, uh, how you met Laura, your wife. Because if you hadn't have been an MP, that wouldn't have happened. Mm. But I think it was a story, I found it fascinating. Yeah, it was in the, um, it's been in the papers. Her niece, our niece had gone missing, disappeared. And I met her sister who was looking for her. And um, I then um, asked to help, and of course I did. And um, So her sister had gone to Tony Benn, hadn't she? Yeah, she'd gone to Tony Benn, who said, go and see Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I met Lara through that. And um, uh, then she went back to Mexico, but we kept in touch. So, so and then eventually she came back here. Jasmine and niece, the, the, the parents had split up and she uh, yeah, dad had yeah, took yeah, it away. Yeah, yeah. But it's just one of those interesting stories that, you know, as, as, a, as a kind of rom-com, you, you can... A what? A rom-com, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 you yeah. can almost see Hugh Grant being you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I never expected to say that at the start of the day. <laughs> That'd be a lovely thing. You can't... You me can't and, me and Hugh Grant are a bit different. Yeah, but it, <laughs> it's well, a rom-com. hair for a start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think big, Jeremy, think big. So, listen, <laughs> every show we, we ask people to bring on a photograph that, that's important to them. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. uh, Personal to them. This is the picture that you've brought. Can you just talk us through it? Well, as you can see, that's um, Stonehenge. We grew up uh, as small children in um, Chippenham, Wiltshire, which isn't that far from Stonehenge. And my mum and dad were... Well, they didn't like anybody being at home. They didn't like anybody not doing something, so they dragged us all off to Stonehenge that day. And they'd probably given me, even though I was probably about four then, I'd probably got quite a long lecture about the history of Stonehenge. Um, and that's the whole family there together. Do you, do you think, knowing that your mum and dad were, were political, do you think they'd be proud of the man you've become? I hope so. I hope so. They both were still alive when I was first elected to Parliament, so they were... They saw that and were very pleased about that. So uh, I think they would be, but I hope so. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think whatever political persuasion you're on, that's got to be a great conversation, hasn't it? Jeremy, thank you.
This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.